a very common comment is there's something wrong. The number of website visitors has gone down. You know, whether that be a Google ads campaign or campaign on LinkedIn or anything else. And you say, yes, that's what we wanted because you can only sell to three people a day or whatever, and you were getting 3,000. So all I wanna do is pay for the three you're gonna to sell to. I don't wanna pay for the other 2,997 that you're never gonna to sell to. And to me, it's this feeling that if everything is going up, it's good. The bigger the number is the better. And actually that's not the case. It's all about trying to, to make sure that you're paying for the visitors who are gonna become customers, and frankly, not paying for the visitors who are never gonna become customers. Welcome to the Business Mastermind Podcast with business strategist, speaker and author, Gavin Preston. Tap into this meeting of minds between everyday business people on their journey to master business growth. Join them as they share strategies, insights and shortcuts to help you survive and thrive in business and life as you scale your business and achieve a bigger impact. Gavin here, welcome back to the Business Mastermind podcast. Mike Maynard is our guest today. We talk about how marketing and sales, that balance and that switch has actually moved during lockdown more towards the front end marketing piece that has enabled then salespeople to become much more laser like focused on that tighter niche, tighter target demographic. We talk about importance of content, we talk about the customer journey, and we also go on to talk about growth through acquisition and some of Mike's lessons learned. Hello and welcome back to the Business Mastermind podcast. Today, I've got the great pleasure of chatting with Mike Maynard. Now, Mike is the Managing Director, the CEO of the Napier Group, a $7 million PA and marketing agency for B2B technology companies. He's a self-confessed geek who loves talking about technology. He believes that also combining the measurement, accountability, and innovation that he's learned as an engineer with a passion for communicating internationally means that APIA can help clients achieve their marketing goals sooner. So today we're going to talk about trends in marketing. We're going to talk about the right marketing technology in your business. And we're also going to talk about sort of growth through acquisition. So Mike, welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Gavin. That's brilliant. So share a little bit about your business journey and how you sort of developed this geekiness around technology and how you went from engineering into the world of marketing and PR. So, so yeah, it was um, an entirely accidental career, I think is, is the most important thing. I, I initially started when I was at school. I wanted to be a mathematician. Um, and then in my final year, um, at school in the sixth form, we we actually built um, a new control desk for the um, theatre lighting system at school. And I loved it so much, I thought, oh, electronics, that looks interesting. Um, so went off and studied electronics, um, had a great time, um, worked for a number of different companies, but eventually realised that I didn't really enjoy necessarily the whole engineering process, and particularly the, the kind of... Um, you know, really painful bureaucratic bits of moving something from a design into production. Um, so I decided actually what I preferred was talking about technology um, and was lucky enough to be able to move into um, what's called field applications or technical support for engineers, okay. basically. Yeah. Um, and then move from that into marketing. Fantastic. And your engineering brain the brain that's focused on solving problems but also basing those solutions based on data how specifically has that really been helpful for you as a marketeer 
Well, it's it's helpful, and then then of course there's some downsides as well. So, um, being a marketeer, of course, you're never allowed to say problems. Um, and if there weren't any problems, there wouldn't be any engineers. So, I, I really believe in in solving problems rather than overcoming challenges. But uh, I definitely moderate my the way I express this for people. Um, but having said that, there's lots of benefits, and I think particularly now as uh, marketing moves more digital it's all about not only being able to crunch the numbers but understand the numbers and and read behind them and to me that that's really important is going beyond you know just looking for numbers or arrows to be green or numbers to go up and actually look at impact on the business and and that's a much more in-depth skill and a a much more detailed analysis and i think that's something my engineering background has helped with and i think in terms of where marketing is moving already that data and the being able to subdivide different target demographics and be able to really adapt create micro campaigns that are very targeted small population is certainly the vanguard of where marketing is going at the moment definitely and and you know my my example would be you know people talk about the website and they say well what sort of website traffic have you got and my my answer is pretty much i don't care i need two visitors a month. I can just about do two pitches a month as an agency. Um, so if I get two visitors that turn into pitches, I'm happy. Um, you know, and, and if you've got, you know, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 visitors, it, it's kind of irrelevant because most of those visitors are never actually going to be customers. So it's all about really digging deeply into the people who are going to add value to the business and, and trying to make sure you get more of them rather than just going for these kind of vanity metrics of how many visitors or how many pages you get a month. And how do you dig deeper? So how do you dig deeper? What kind of tech tools do you use to dig deeper? Well, that's a great question. We see people using different tools, um, but fundamentally, I think the way people are doing it today is, is, is we're talking about customer journeys. Um, so if we look at, um, what's happened in marketing, I think the customer journey is, it's probably only 15, 20 years old as a concept. Um, but it's an incredibly simple idea where people take various steps on their journey from knowing nothing about you to becoming a customer. Um, and in each of those steps, you can make measurements. Um, so is there any value in getting people to the website? Well, of course there is, you know, there's some value because, people need to go to the website to find out about you, but that's much less valuable than someone maybe signing up for a newsletter um, or someone giving us a call or someone, you know, wanting to um, have a proposal or indeed someone wanting to to have a pitch meeting. So it's all about trying to get as far down that journey as possible and look at the things that impact what really matters, which, you know, for us and pretty much all our clients is, is getting more customers. Sure. Where do you see a lot of businesses who you're working with? Where, what, are they missing out on where are they going wrong in terms of understanding their customers understanding their target market and then reaching out and engaging and then ultimately converting so the first thing i see is people looking to make all the numbers move up um so quite often we start working with with clients um and we take over campaigns they've already been running and um, a very common comment is there's something wrong the number of website visitors has gone down you know, whether that be a Google ads campaign or campaign on LinkedIn or anything else. And you say, yes, that's what we wanted. 
because you can only sell to three people a day or whatever, and you were getting 3,000. So all I want to do is pay for the three you're going to sell to. I don't want to pay for the other 2,997 that you're never going to sell to. And to me, it's this feeling that if everything is going up, it's good. The bigger the number is the better. And actually, that's not the case. It's all about trying to, to make sure that you're paying for the visitors who are going to become customers, and frankly, not paying for the visitors who are never going to become customers. So you're focusing on not only increasing um, conversions, but you're also increasing return on ad spend. Exactly. If you if you can get a higher conversion rate, you're going to get a better return, um, even if you're paying more for each uh, particular visitor. So when you <clears throat> let's put it between B two B and B two C, business to business, business to consumer, are you seeing different strategies in those different sort of sectors gaining more traction? So. In a way, the principles are the same. There, there are some big differences. So if you look at business to consumer, typically the number of customers is huge. Um, so we have uh, you know, clients who um, might only want one customer a year. I mean, we have a client who will um, develop baggage handling systems for airports. Um, and they're the biggest manufacturer of baggage handling systems in the world. And obviously, they've got lots of other business maintenance and, and support and things like that. But in terms of actually building major installations of, of, you know, a new terminal, basically, in a major airport, probably there's only a couple of year actually being built. So, you know, they, they don't need huge volumes of customers. Whereas if I'm selling a chocolate bar, I need to sell a lot more chocolate bars to make money than I do baggage handling systems for airports. You know, it's, um, it's simple math. So I don't think the principles are any different. You know, if you're, if you're Cadbury's or, you know, if you're trying to sell baggage handling systems, um, you really care about getting the right people to the website, paying for the right traffic, if you like. Um, but at the end of the day, it, the numbers are very different. And, and that does mean you do things slightly differently. So, um, if you look at consumer, you can do a lot more around um, automation and analytics and things tend to be, I wouldn't say manual, but they tend to be less automated um, when you look at a lot of the, the low volume business to business applications. How are you finding people are cutting through the noise? Because any platform, whether it be LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, or, or, or even sort of Google, that there's a lot of noise out there, isn't there? So how, how, how are you helping people? clients get the cut through to their intended desired target customer so in business to business it's really easy you produce content that helps people do their job better it's really that simple and the amount of content out of there that is unhelpful doesn't provide the detail maybe it's just a simple sales pitch it's actually still not that hard to cut through if you give people something that is valuable to them um, and and it, it sounds really trivial. It sounds like I'm, I'm almost copping out and not answering the question. But it, re- it really can be quite difficult to understand, you know, exactly what the problem your customers are having. Um, and then how you can help them solve it and not necessarily solve it by, you know, by widget X, because this is going to be amazing. It's all about helping them understand different approaches to solve it. And, and you're trying to guide them down that journey towards you. Um, but actually, you know, some of the best content won't necessarily only appeal to people who become your customers. Um, but if you can keep building that in the marketplace, um, you'll actually find that you build a reputation um, as a business and you also build a reputation as a place to go when people have problems. And so you'll find that, you know, maybe one time out of 10, people will download content and go somewhere else. 
because they've actually decided that someone else has got a better, better product. But nine times out of 10, you're still winning and you're absolutely cutting through because what you're producing adds value. It's really about putting yourself in the customer's shoes. And that is unbelievably difficult for a lot of companies. And in terms of the medium for that content, um, does it have to be a, a mix of written articles versus video content and audible content? Or are you finding video, for example, is, is the way to produce that content? I, that, that's a great question. And I, I actually think, Gavin, that it's all about the content and not about the medium. Um, okay. So we have, we have clients doing you know, great campaigns are across a whole range of different uh, media and they're doing great videos and they're, they're frankly spending a lot of money um, and it's working. And then we have other clients who might write, you know, one ebook and that's working. Um, and so it, it, there, isn't, there isn't a magic answer here. And again, I think it's about looking at who your customers are and what they need and how they want to get that information. Um, and in some cases, you know, people want information in different ways. In a lot of cases, visual information is very, very valuable. But in, in other areas, you know, for example, we have clients who sell um, silicon chips. And actually, video content there, it's really hard to add value. It tends to be, it tends to be webinars, actually, that work really well. And, and you know, it's PowerPoint slides, and it, it's, not, it's not thrilling 3D animations by any means. It, it, it really is, is very earnest, in-depth content. But that's what works. Whereas in other sectors, you know, particularly perhaps the more industrial automation sector, um, where actually seeing products working and how they work is really, really important, then I think, you know, animation and video comes into its own and is, is really powerful. So th there isn't a good answer there. Um, and it does vary from client to client. I suspect you may have a similar answer to my next question, but you talked about in-depth content that helps somebody to improve their, do their job better. But so you've got this balance between depth and length of content or length of time to consume content versus attention span. Mm -hmm. And so how do you help sort of navigate that sort of tightrope between ha having enough depth, but not too long that people switch off and therefore they don't properly fully consume it? And, and there, I think it's about, you know, sometimes it, it's actually easiest to go to the simple funnel model. Um, and if you think about it, people are at the top of the funnel so that you're building awareness, they're not going to give you an hour for a webinar. Um, they want something that's very short, you know, very easy to look at that just catches their interest um, and moves them forward. Whereas someone who's about to invest, you know, and, and with some of our clients, you know, their, their products people are investing millions or tens of millions of pounds you know believe me an hour-long webinar is really short um, so um, I think it, it's about understanding where the the customer is um, and that same customer will have different length pieces of content depending upon where they are in the process um, you know equally we have um, a lot of clients where perhaps a customer might buy only infrequently um, so you know they're buying a component for a system and you know two out of three of the designs they do will use one of our client's components and one out of three won't. So maybe they're only looking, you know, they're maybe they're only doing three designs a year and they're only looking for two months of that year. So outside of those two months, they don't want anything in depth. Um, they want to keep up to date. They want to know what's new. They want to feel that they're being helped to, to understand the latest in their industry, but they're not going to go into any depth of 
analyzing you know the product and how it works and its performance um, but when they actually get to the time when they're buying um, the product and trying to decide which product to buy then obviously you know things change and they really want the detail um, and it's interesting I mean engineers they really want the detail they, they want the numbers and the, the statistics and the graphs and the, it, it's very very detailed and very different to you know even a lot of other b2b industries um, but certainly very different from uh, consumer and that again of course means you, you you've got to be very clear about not only who your target customer is but who are the decision makers in within that client system or that business and then change your approach because if there's a chief technology officer or the chief engineer or something what you do for them may well be different from uh, say a chief exec who may not have an engineering background that, that's a brilliant point that is an absolutely brilliant point as well the, the people involved in that decision making unit will all have different needs and and you're right you know the the chief technology officer might want to spend a day analyzing a product i can tell you a ceo won't or a cfo won't you know that they'll just want to feel good about the vendor and they, they need very different things so um yeah absolutely it's it's very different hey gavin here i want to get to know you you're part of my community now if you are serious about significant growth over the next two to three years, whether organically or through acquisition, let's jump on a call. Let me understand you and your business that much more so that I can come up with some suggestions that you can get on with implementing right now. Go to bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. That's bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. And what technology, marketing technology specifically, do you use a with your clients or encourage your clients to use to um, improve that that pitching and, and well the identification of the lead through to conversion? So I, I mean, at the start, a lot of it is is kind of paper and pen. It, it's about working out the customers and okay, maybe we we put it on PowerPoint now rather than actually draw it out. But the reality is is that um, today. A lot of um, what you need to do is is about thinking about the customer. So, and there aren't good technology solutions. I mean, there are a few websites that will build personas and things like that, but they're, they're not great. It's when it comes to the delivery stage that um, the tools come in, and they're certainly you know marketing automation tools uh, are really um, an area where almost everybody can get a good return from them. Um, that that's a huge area. We do a lot with, um, you know, different advertising platforms. So digital advertising platforms. Um, we do quite a bit with social media and social media analytics tools. We obviously use Google Analytics to to look at how websites are going and and therefore how digital programs are working. So it it really is a mix of tools. But I think it's it's just way too easy to get hung up on the tool and not think about what you're trying to achieve. And so. I always think the tools should be secondary. They should be there to help you achieve something. If you've not got a goal, something you want to do, you shouldn't be looking at a tool because the first thing is to understand what you really want to do. How do you think marketing is changing, you know, in 2020, moving over to 2021 with, you know, more working from home, less face-to-face engagement? What are some of the trends that you're, that you're seeing in marketing? Well, I, I mean, it goes without saying that digital is, is clearly much bigger. You know, reaching reaching people is incredibly hard. Um, and to me, that's really exciting because actually what we're seeing is that there's, there's always a kind of line between sales and marketing, and it's a bit fuzzy. 
Um, and marketing people think, you know, that 80% of the work is in marketing and salespeople think that 120% is in sales. Um, but, uh, you know, there's this line between marketing and sales and definitely the marketing sector has got bigger um, with people working from home because you simply can't pick up the phone and call a lot of people um, as a salesperson. You certainly can't walk into a business and go around and meet several people. So um, I think definitely marketing has become more important. Salespeople probably have become more focused, um, which again is a good thing. Um, but it really is driven around finding the right channel. And clearly there, you know, digital, whether that be social media, whether that be online publications, whether that be email, all of that is is disproportionately more effective not necessarily because it's suddenly magically wonderful um but because to be honest there's probably an awful lot of printed magazines um that are being sent to businesses that are piling up in business post rooms so you know some of those other more conventional tactics that are not working clearly you know trade shows are just not happening um and so that there's no opportunity there so i think that's what's happened it hasn't change digital marketing digital marketing has always been like it is but some of the non-digital tactics you know you either can't do or they're much harder to make work um, and so that's why there's a big switch to digital sure and with that big switch there's more noise so we're back to this earlier point therefore mm -hmm. you need to make sure that you're delivering content that you know is going to have real value to a very tight niche of, of, of your ideal target customer Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the clients who do well are the ones who spend the time thinking about what would make a big difference to their customer and produce that content, um, rather than just saying, right, we're going to do three blog posts a week. Um, and, and it's those kind of, again, and that's kind of a vanity metric, but, um, you know, three blog posts a week, they might be good, they might be terrible, but, but I don't know if they're good or terrible based on the fact of doing three a week. Um, so I think it, it's, it's those, those companies that invest the time and the money and the, you know, the effort into producing great content actually work. I mean, you, you have a, a big thing in the industry, people talk about 10x content, um, where one piece of content might produce 10 times the results of uh, some other piece of content. I mean, actually, the reality is in the industry, you see 100x content. You see, you know, one piece might be 100 times more effective than, than, than one of your less good pieces. So putting the effort into what really works um, makes a big difference. Having said that, you know, you do also have to do some testing. Um, and again, the great thing about digital is you can absolutely test using digital. And how do people do that, the testing piece? So people do it very differently. Um, typically, people do it very unscientifically. Um, so they'll, they'll run campaigns or run two campaigns somewhat around the same time, somewhat in the same way. And they'll kind of decide one looks better than the other. Um, I think it's very important to understand statistics um, because certainly where you have campaigns that aren't producing large number of responses, so particularly some of the very focused campaigns, actually you might just be making decisions based on randomness. Um, so understanding statistics, we actually have a tool on our website to tell you whether um, two different tests are statistically different or not, or whether actually it, it, it's probably just randomness. Um, so I think, you know, people do that. And, and ultimately, if you keep testing, you will get a feel as to what works and what doesn't. 
Um, and you'll also fairly frequently get the humbling experience where you say, this is the way to do things. And then the test proves that absolutely you have no idea what you're talking about. And actually the alternative approach was much better. Um, so I think you, you've got to be prepared to be proven wrong. Um, you know, simple things like, um, you know, if you're promoting a webinar, you think with professionals, you know, cheesy things like webinar series starting tomorrow isn't going to work. I, I can tell you for sure that we've done it for a client recently um, and it's worked and it feels, it feels cheesy. But I mean, in that case, I think it was something like three or four times the uh, click through rate of people going through to the registration page to register for the webinar. So in, in, you know, with that yeah. headline webinar series starting tomorrow. Yeah. Just, just basically putting the timing in. Um, Interesting. Interesting. It, it was, it was unbelievable. And I never thought it would work, but you know, it, you've got to be prepared to try different things. Um, so yeah, that, that timeliness. And, and I suspect the reason is, is you talk about noise. I mean, in business to business, everybody is doing webinars. There are more webinars than you could ever possibly imagine watching in your sector, no matter how niche your sector is. Um, and so I think maybe the, the urgency was one of those ways of, you know, perhaps a shortcut to a, a, a achieving that cut through you talked about. Um, because, you know, the reality is, is, is although our clients are trying to do great content, other clients are as well. They're not, they've not got a monopoly on it. But that's fascinating because if you were thinking about a, a live event, like a, a physical sort of workshop or seminar or an event that you put on for somebody, you might think you need to put six or more weeks of notice in the, to get people in their diary. But now you're saying starting tomorrow, people have got that, a little bit more flexibility to juggle things around to be able to show up for, for a webinar. And, and there is a theory that with people working from home, they're making arrangements much, much later because they're not traveling. You know, they're sat at their desk five days a week, and that may not be the case um, during normal times. So there is a theory that actually people are making arrangements later. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but it was it was one of the theories that, that someone came up with when they said, well, let's try, you know, putting a bit of um, a scarcity in it by saying, you know, it's starting now, you've got to register now. Um, and it is crazy in a way, because pretty much every webinar is also available on demand afterwards. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see how, uh, you know, some, sometimes things work where you don't expect. And I, I think that's important to, to be prepared to, to test some different things. To change tack then. So you've grown um, your uh, business through acquisition and you've done that obviously more than once. So why, for, you know, what, what, why did you seek out an acquisition um, sort of strategy for growth as opposed to organically growing? So we're, we're doing both. I mean, if we look at our growth, part of it is, is organic, part of it's acquisition. Um, I, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. One is acquisition is quicker. Mm -hmm. um, it lets you, you know, move forward very, very quickly. Acquisition is typically lower risk. I mean, there's di certainly different risks compared to trying to grow organically. Um, but also, I think, you know, in our industry, in the agency sector, acquisition is a very quick way to enter new segments. So um, as an agency owner, you know, one of our frustrations is that um, you either have two conversations with a potential client. One is saying, well, we need a list of 10 people who are just like us who you've worked with. Um, and the other is the conversation where they say, of course, you have to be exclusive to us and you can't work with anyone who's even vaguely similar. 
Um, and and sometimes, sometimes quite often you get both conversations from the same potential client. Um, but but there is a there is definitely benefit in having some momentum, some expertise in particular segments. So one of the reasons we did acquisition was to actually um, grow the markets we address um, and be able to do that very quickly and relatively um, securely in terms of risk uh, because we knew that we were buying into something that within certain bounds was was going to deliver us some business in that sector going forward. Whereas trying to sell into that sector relies on, you know, finding those customers, um, winning the business, you know, frankly, the customers wanting to look for a new agency during that time. So it, it accelerates things. It gives you a bit more predictability. It obviously, on the other hand, introduces more challenges in terms of managing acquisitions. So it, it's not all, it's, it's not all plain sailing. Um, but it, it certainly has some distinct benefits. And what have you found has been your sort of major lessons learned from doing acquisitions? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think you can necessarily learn lessons from individual acquisitions because I think every acquisition is different. But if I was to look at my acquisitions again, I would build a very clearly defined process of what we do. Um, because I think setting expectations is really important. And where you have a situation where, you know, perhaps the, the company being acquired, you know, the people there think one thing and the company doing the acquiring think another, um, it, it can get difficult. So I think setting very clear expectations absolutely is is probably the way to do it and that probably means you know building some sort of process some sort of standard time scale um you know in terms of what we're doing you know we've made acquisitions and we've actually absorbed those um companies under our, our napier brand after a period of time um but because we didn't have a a formal approach of how and when we did it it's always a bit awkward when you start talking to the, you know, the previous owner saying right now we're going to move away from the brand. We always said we did, but you know, they're, they're kind of like, well, you never said it'd be now. And you're like, no, but so you, you get this, this kind of vagueness between you. And I think that's probably the, the biggest mistake that I've made um, with acquisitions is not having a clearly defined process and roadmap for after the acquisition. I mean, our process before was, was was pretty good i think but afterwards i think you know laying it out over the next whatever it is year 18 months two years is is really important for everybody how have you found the cultural integration piece is that something that um has been particularly difficult or uh you found that actually be because of the acquisitions that you found yourself doing that there was a, nat a good fit anyway that's a really good question um I think everybody has trouble with culture because the culture of companies is, is very different. Um, and it's very hard to change that, particularly when you're still in that company. Um, I would say one of the interesting things I've learned is when you're running the company separately in any way. Um, so whether it's just trading under different brands, you know, different offices, anything like that, then it's much harder to, to get, everybody into the same culture as when you're all one team um and so you know again if i was to have my time over again i would have probably brought the acquisitions under the same um 
under the same brand sooner because I think that helps with with getting a you know a consistent culture. Um, I mean, I mean, the the first acquisition we did um, was an agency called Peter Bush Communications, um, and and obviously started and run by Peter Bush very successfully for many years, um, and and I remember being pretty terrified about having to tell Peter that we weren't going to call it Peter Bush anymore. Um, and Peter is this amazing, amazing guy. Um, and he just said, he said, yeah, I wonder when you're going to call me for that. You know, I'm not really doing very much. I thought you're probably a bit late and, and I've been really <laughs> worried about it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we still have a page on our website that talks about Peter Bush as the agency because it's an important part of the heritage and it's fundamentally an office. Yeah. Um, yeah. But actually, yeah, I probably should have done that a bit earlier. Um, you know, Peter certainly thought I should have done. Um, but it's it's a really interesting challenge getting those cultures together. Um, but having said that, we do have pretty similar cultures. I mean, obviously, after an acquisition, you have some competition, and that's never, never great. You know, where where both sides are trying to prove they're they're better than the other, mm-hmm. um, I, I, and that always causes a bit of friction. I bet. Yeah. Um, but but we haven't had major problems um, in terms of the culture. I'd say you know the the people we've we've acquired through these acquisitions have been great. We've been really pleased with them. And do you um, feel there's a optimum number of acquisitions you could do in a year? I know every deal is different and the size of them, but you know if it's a if if your strategy is kind of two two prong between organic and mm-hmm. acquisition, are you looking to do one or two acquisitions a year? So I think it very much depends on how you set up your program and the company. So because I'm still involved a lot within the day-to-day side of the company and I'm not completely focused on acquisitions, we probably would want to do an acquisition every two years as a, as a maximum frequency um, because it's taken us that long to really do the integration. Um, that's not to say that's the right answer. That's probably the wrong answer. Um, because I think if you had, you know, people within the management team more focused on the acquisition and more focused on um, finding the right companies and then integrating them and you had that process, um, you would actually do it quicker and you could do more acquisitions. So there's, there's, there's no right answer to that. It depends on how you're set up. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. Have you found that you've actually introduced a new role into the management team with somebody that, that is really focused on sourcing opportunities and doing the deal and then the post-acquisition integration? And the answer is no, and that's why we couldn't do many acquisitions. Yeah. So yeah. I think if people wanted to, you know, wanted to grow very aggressively by doing, you know, even one a year, but certainly more than one a year, they would need someone really focused on doing that within the, the management team. Yeah, completely, completely. Um, but also, there must be some some good s- stories. Obviously, acquisitions worked well for you. But, but in terms of once you've got past that initial tension between each party trying to outdo the other, presumably there's greater opportunity opened up for in, uh, individual team members and greater synergy. So the end results for the customer or the client is improved. Absolutely. So um, the most recent acquisition we did, Armitage. Um, we were very clear about what we wanted. So we wanted an agency that was really good at content generation, particularly writing, technical writing. Um, And we wanted an agency that was um, in the industrial automation space. So we've been able to bring services to our industrial automation clients that 
um, really weren't brought to them before. But also we've been able to, to bring, um, you know, some of that, that knowledge and skill and the services from, from the, the company we acquired into our core customers as well. So the, the original Napier customers. So yeah, absolutely. And the other thing it, it gives you is more opportunity to promote people um, because you, you've got this um, ability to um, create more roles, more positions. So you, you get better career development. Um, and you get a wider range of people to work with. And I think, again, you know, we weren't, we weren't as focused in getting both sides of the team to work together. Initially, we kind of said we're going to run it separately. And I think that was, looking back on it, probably a mistake. I think probably the best thing to do would be to, to try and get people, you know, working together from day one to see, you know, to see what, what's being brought by the acquisition. A fascinating and varied conversation where we've been talking about um, target markets and uh, content and how you can create 10x or even 100x content through to benefits of acquisition as a growth strategy and some of the sort of uh, insights and lessons through that. If somebody wants to find out um, more about Napier, more about yourself, Mike, how do they do that? Yeah, I mean, if somebody wants to contact me, probably the best place is LinkedIn. Um, if you search for Mike Maynard and Napier, um, you should get me on LinkedIn. Um, our website is napierb2b.com. So uh, letter B, number two, letter B.com. Um, and uh, we're also uh, just starting a podcast as well. So um, our podcast is uh, Marketing B2B Technology. Um, and so if you're in the B2B technology market and you want to understand more, you know, it's a podcast for you. Unfortunately, if you're in consumer, it really isn't the right podcast for you. <laughs> um, but if you want to see how, how people can screw up podcasts in, in the early days, we're still at that very early stage. And um, yeah, there, there's some pretty uh, cringeworthy moments. So uh, we're nowhere near as professional as, uh, you know, some of the longer lasting podcasts like your own, Gavin. Well, thank you kindly. But uh, what I do love about what you're doing is, again, your niche, really targeting the mm -hmm. niche of the podcast because, you know, podcast is a great space. It's an exciting space, but there is a lot out there. And people can only listen to so much. So the more specific and niche you can get, the the, the better your, your better your podcast is in terms of cut through stuff. Um, Mike's been a real privilege. Thank you very much for your time today uh, coming on to the Business Mastermind podcast. And, um, yeah, really, uh, really looking forward to, for, to getting this, uh, this episode out. Thanks a lot, Gavin. Hey, Gavin here. I want to get to know you. You're part of my community now. If you are serious about significant growth over the next two to three years, whether organically or through acquisition, let's jump on a call. Let me understand you and your business that much more so that I can come up with some suggestions that you can get on with implementing right now. Go to bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. That's bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. Hi, Gavin here. Some great insights there from Mike. You know, I like that distinction that through lockdown, the piece around that balance between marketing and sales, marketing has become a bigger put front end part, enabling greater sort of targeting, greater niching, so that the salespeople can be so much more focused on tighter demographic. Um, he talks about the importance of the customer journey, which many of you will be very, very, very familiar with, but also about how 10x content, that one piece of content may produce 10 times the results of other pieces of content. And then his 
stories around lessons learned around acquisitions, you know, set expectations is very, very important at the outset and build a very clear time scale, a standard time scale that you use across other acquisitions, um, being a process uh, post-acquisition of integration. It's having those clear standards, clear processes with clear expectations. Great insights. Mike, thank you very much for a really good interview. You've been listening to the Business Mastermind podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that more people like you can get their business back on their own terms, enjoy more success and create more impact.